Train Shuffling is brought to you by Midgard Hobbies and Games, our friendly local game store. Next, we'd like to thank Luxury Playstyle, maker of fine metal gaming accessories. Visit LuxPlay.com and use promo code LUXINFORMANT for 15% off. Next, we'd like to thank our wonderful patrons for your support. Your contributions help improve our live streams and bring you better content. If you'd like to buy a few shares of Train Shuffling, you can do so by visiting Patreon.com slash MeekInformant. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to Train Shuffling. I'm Johnny Hollander. And I'm Eric Hyden. And we're the Train Shufflers. That's us. We are the Train Shufflers, yes. Uh, I've got <laughs> nothing. I'm just trying to riff on that and it's dead. I keep, my brain's dead. Womp womp. Yep. All right, so we've got kind of, a, this is not a bonus episode, but it's kind of a special episode because we're trying to do a ep- an episode that Eric can point his family to when they become interested in 18xx and say where do i start it's totally gonna happen this is the beginner special so this is for anyone who has ever heard of 18xx games or seen these funny games with maps and found out what they are but doesn't really know or has heard like uh i've I've heard they're really scary or that the people who play them are not friendly or the games are ugly or they take a long time or i have to be good at math and all that stuff um, and only half of that stuff is true. So we're going to tell you which is true and which is not true. All the bad stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's there's lots of misinformation about 18xx games that might keep someone who has interest from trying it. And we want to try to dispel some of that and prove that they're fun. These games, despite the fact that they are stark looking and about stuff that might seem boring, can be some of the best games that you've ever played if you give them a shot and get through that initial discovery period well said before we pull back the curtain on 18xx we do have a correction from last episode we attributed 18tn to david hecht and it's actually designed by mark derrick whoops whoops (laughs) so uh yeah sorry to both of you (laughs) um you know because they're aptly listening who knows maybe you never know we found out that uh tom tom has heard every episode yeah which is pretty cool cool. hi tom Uh, (laughs) eric what is an 18xx game i'm glad you asked johnny so generally speaking 18xx games are a collection of railroad themed games set in the 1800s where players act as investors in a number of railroad corporations that feature the building of shared track and the buying and selling of shares of stock of the game's corporation. The ultimate goal in an 18xx game is to end the game with the most money. The richest player at the end wins. The first 18xx game was 1829, designed by the late Francis Tresham in 1974. He then went on to design 1830, Railways, and Robber Barons in 1986. These two games were built on a similar framework, but key changes to the rules drastically changed how the games feel and play. 1830 remains the most popular 18xx game to this day. At the time of this recording, it's ranked as the 188th game overall on BoardGameGeek, with the next most popular entry being 1846 at number 453. Uh, Before we get really into things, for every generalization we're about to make, there's likely at least one exception. We're speaking broadly here, so please don't email us with all the examples of the exceptions to the things that we're about to say and that we're wrong. So that said, let's go over some of the common features of 18xx games. One thing is that when you play in these games, there'll be companies and they'll have a treasury of money and there'll be players who have money. And the company's money is not the player's money. And and the player, even if they're the president of a corporation or a company, they don't own the company's money, the company does. So that'll make a little more sense in a minute. Yeah. 18xx games play out over a series of sets of stock rounds where players can buy and sell stock of various companies in the game and operating rounds where the companies will operate in order, usually based on their share value. And here's the first of many things that we'll point out that sets 18xx games apart from many other kinds of games. The person who holds the most shares in a company is known as its president, or sometimes its director. Only the president of a company is allowed to make decisions for what the company does on its turn during an operating round. 
And the president of a company isn't set in stone. If at any point someone other than the president happens to have more shares than the current one, either because they bought more shares than that person, or because the president sold enough shares to no longer have the majority, the presidency is transferred, and a new person is now responsible for that company. Responsibility is an important word there, because as the president of a company, you're liable for the financial burdens of the company when things go south. One of the things a company generally must do is own a train. Trains in 18xx games come in many shapes and sizes, but the basic pattern is that they start small and cheap, and new, better, more expensive trains are available over time. As these new trains, which represent new developments in locomotive technology, are purchased, they make older trains obsolete. The game accomplishes this by removing all of the trains of a specific older type from the game the instant the new technology is available. We call this rusting. So remember how I said that a company generally has to have a train? Well, if my company is about to operate and the company before it buys a new shiny train and that causes all of my trains to rust, then I have a problem. My company will be forced to buy a new train, and it may or may not have the money to buy it. If the company runs out of money, then it looks to the president to make up the difference to buy the train. And if the president doesn't have the money to buy a train, they then have to sell off shares until they can. And if they still can't come up with enough money, they go bankrupt, and in many cases, although not always, the game will end. Instead of bankruptcy, some games feature player elimination, loans, penalties, etc., but the end result is always disastrous for the president. So we mentioned that these games are played out over a series of alternating stock and operating rounds. Let's talk about the map, where most of the operating round action occurs. The map is represented by a grid of hexes, and track is represented by hex tiles that are laid on top of the map, and the, the track tiles are color-coded, indicating what phase they can be placed or upgraded, and each tile will have black lines representing the track itself. And the, the color coding usually goes yellow first, and then yellow tiles can be upgraded to green, and then green can be upgraded to brown or russet if you're feeling fancy, and then to gray in some games. Yep. And every title has a unique tile roster made up of the type and quantities of track tiles available in the game. Most games will also include a tile manifest, which shows each type of tile and which tiles they can be upgraded into. This can be helpful in planning your routes early. Some games have rosters which are very generous, giving players a virtually unlimited source of whatever configuration of track they may need. Others will be more limited, having a scarce number of certain types of track. The tile roster in a particular title will help shape the feel of the operating rounds, how easy or hard, how competitive route building will be. Speaking of roots, another important term in 18xx, there are caveats and idiosyncrasies galore when defining a root in 18xx. But the most basic definition is that a root consists of some number of stops, usually called cities and or towns, one of which must include a station marker of the operating company. And stations are important, not just because you need to have one along your route for it to be valid, but because they also provide you access to travel through the city in which you have a station. If all station spots are taken by other companies, you can travel to that city, but not through it. Getting stations in the right cities can be just as important as building the right track to develop profitable routes for your trains. Like the tile roster, the competitiveness of station placement is highly dependent on the title, and oftentimes your playgroup. Now that you know what a route and a station marker are, you might be asking yourself, self, why do I care about routes and train stations? Well, this is where you'll be running your trains to actually turn a profit. And not just for yourself as a president, but for all shareholders. Generally speaking, the more cities and towns you hit, the more revenue your company will earn. And as the president, you get to decide what to do with that revenue. Don't be scared off by the word revenue. It's not as boring as it sounds. Do I pay it to shareholders? Do I put it back into the company to fund a future train? Do I use it to pay for track laying? Or you have to pay for station markers as well. So do I use it to pay for those? Or in some titles, you can split the profits between the company and the shareholders. Yeah, and each decision will come with its pros and cons. Generally speaking, withholding revenue, meaning putting it back into the company, means the share value will drop. As the president, you own more shares than anyone else, so that's going to hurt you more than the other investors. And since you have the most non-paying shares, that also hurts you more. However, it may be necessary in order to avoid having to pay for a train with your personal money or potentially going bankrupt, as we mentioned before. 
Paying dividends means splitting the total revenue amongst all the shareholders of the company. That means each player gets a cut according to their level of investment in the company. As the president, that usually means you'll make the most money because you have the most shares. Depending on the title, the money paid for shares that aren't owned by the players could stay in the bank or end up in the company treasury, giving you a bit of the best of both worlds. Furthermore, your share value will increase when you pay out. Some games even have double, triple, or quadruple stock jumps when you pay out double, triple, or quadruple your stock value, which can help make the decision to withhold less painful. Yep. And the last part of each company's operation will be to purchase one or more trains. As mentioned before, if you already have a train, you're off the hook. The number of trains your company is allowed to have is determined by the phase of the game. Earlier in the game, you can own more trains, sometimes as many as four trains. And as the game progresses, that limit is reduced to three and then often two by the end of the game. In any case, if you have a current train, meaning a not rusted train, and you have room for more, buying a train is optional. If you ever get to the train buying step and you don't have a train, you must buy one. Sometimes you can avoid this obligation if your company doesn't have a valid route, but in general, every company must own at least one train. And as we mentioned before, if the company has to buy a train and can't afford one, the president is liable to fund it with his or her personal money and or shares. So to recap the operating rounds, they consist of, and usually in this order, you optionally lay and or upgrade track. You then place the station marker, optionally. Then mandatorily run routes, decide what to do with the money, pay or withhold dividends, and then buy trains. Optional if you have one, but it's mandatory usually if you don't. Okay, so what about stock rounds? Although there's variation in what you can do and when, depending on the title, these rounds consist of buying and selling shares in the various companies or starting a company by buying the president's certificate, which is often worth two shares or 20% of the company, although this can vary from title to title. Sometimes it's 30 or 40% for the president's certificate. In some games, the shares that start in the bank are called IPO shares. Those will have a fixed price regardless of the current market value. But once the shares are in play, once they're bought from that IPO, their value will move with the market. So if a company has skyrocketed in value during the operating rounds, but there are still shares that have never been purchased left in the IPO, you can get a deal by buying a share that's immediately worth more when you pay. So if if the IPO share might be 40 or whatever, $65 for a share, but the value might actually be 100. So if you buy it at 65, you've immediately made money. Uh, likewise, if the company has lost value, the shares may cost more in the IPO than their market value. Games that work like this are often called full capitalization or full cap games, meaning that once a certain percentage of shares, usually 50 to 60% have been purchased from the IPO, the bank will fund the rest of the company money up front. This is the point at which the company is considered to have floated and become operational. And future share purchases at that point from the IPO will go to the bank to pay back its investment into the company. This gives companies more money up front relative to the amount of money with which players start. A couple of examples of full cap games are 1830, 1889, and 18 Chesapeake. Another popular capitalization scheme is called incremental cap. And in this style of games, the shares start in the company treasury, and the money used to purchase those shares goes into the company in exchange for the share. You pay the company for a share, and it gives you a share. These shares will rise and fall with the market, unlike IPO shares and the total capital available to the company will be variable, determined by the price at which each share is purchased. An example of that would be 1846. And there are various other capitalization schemes that are combinations and variations of incremental and full cap, but those two are kind of the primary schemes. Right. One other one you might hear is partial cap. And that's where you'll get half of the money up front when you get a certain amount of shares bought when the company floats, and then you'll get the other half later. Right. And the trigger for that is title dependent. It could be hitting a, a certain destination with your company, or it could be having a certain number of shares bought from the IPO at a certain point of the game. Right. Okay. So now you know sort of what an 18xx is. You may have heard that these games are hard to find, have to be made by hand, require extensive math skills, spreadsheets, and take entire days to play. The purpose of this episode is to try and debunk those myths 
point you in the right direction of some options for titles that are both available and on the shorter end of play times to give you some tips for your first game. And this isn't meant to be an all-inclusive guide on how to become a good 18xx player. We're still working on that. But rather a guide to peel back some of the mystery and intrigue and make the genre accessible to those who are interested and perhaps a bit overwhelmed or unsure of where to start. So first things first, what are some options for your first game? There are a lot and opinions will vary, uh, but our top two recommendations based on availability and complexity are 18 Chesapeake and 1889. Uh, Those are two great places to start. Before we get into how and why, know that there are options all across the spectrum for this. This list is based on availability and complexity of rules. You may have heard of 1846, another great intro title, but one that's currently out of print. We'll talk a bit about that one, and if you want to make a reprint more likely, you can go to GMT Games and back to P500 for the second printing. As of this episode, it's about halfway there. Uh, One option that should always be considered, though, is just looking on BGG for a used copy of a game if you have interest and can't find it. Um, There are other places where you can go and look. There's a Slack channel for 18xx, uh, a buying and selling channel in there. Yep. Uh, But when it comes to 1889 and 18 Chesapeake, they actually have a lot in common. And we'd say the main factor in choosing one over the other would be whether or not you want to print, cut, and assemble the game yourself, which would be 1889, or get a mass-produced game that you can punch and play right out of the box, 18 Chesapeake. 1889 is getting republished and reprinted by Grand Chunk Games in 2021, next year. Uh, It's going to be rebranded as Shikoku 1889, title pending, but as of now, it's available only via print and play. Um, Or or from Golden Spike Games, which is a website that has a wait list and is made by hand. One other option that can be considered is 1830. However, that, that game's a little bit longer than either of the two that we recommended here, and it has a similar feel, so we'd recommend trying to hunt these down first. I actually think 1830 is between print runs right now because I see copies up on eBay for quite a bit. So what makes these two titles good for intro titles? They are short, they teach the basics, they have low rules complexity, and after you get past the first play, there's still plenty of game to play there. Whatever you choose, we're going to give you some tips to help you make your first experience a good one, though. So first, and we will probably repeat this often, when in doubt, buy a train. Will it always be the right decision? Is it always going to lead to you winning the game? No. But as a new player, that's going to be hard to discern at times. And what it will do is it'll keep the game moving forward so the games don't take forever. Also, you should strongly consider buying poker chips or finding a set of poker chips or asking your cousin who has a set of poker chips to borrow them to play these games. Because while you can play with paper money, you shouldn't. It it takes a long time. Some games don't even come with paper money because they understand that once you have a set of poker chips, you can play these games with them much faster than than dealing with peeling out individual 20s and dealing with the flimsy paper. Yeah, it's uh, it doesn't seem like it would make a big difference, if, you know, a few seconds or a few minutes here and there, but it adds up. There's a lot of transactions that happen in the course of a game. Another thing that you should keep in mind is to try to plan your turn while others are taking theirs. It can be really easy to to just want to socialize the whole time you're playing and while you still should do that and have fun, um, planning your turn while others are taking theirs and even calculating your routes ahead of time or having your plan A and your plan B, if you can, uh, can help move things along much faster than if you wait to start planning your turn until your turn starts. Also, don't play competitively or worry about winning on the first play. And I know that can be difficult for some people, but really you should go into that first game and treat it as a learning game and don't get stuck analyzing your position. Just make a decision based on what feels right in your gut, pull a lever and see what happens. Strategy will come later. Yeah. And on a similar note, don't play for second place. If you're not winning, meaning that you can see someone else is out earning you and you're not going to catch up and overtake them, do something to change it. Don't just sit there and and earn the second most for the whole game. That's going to lead to a boring and likely longer game than if you just do something drastic to try to change your position. If you end up coming in last place because it didn't work out, 
so be it. There's uh, not a whole lot of difference in coming in second and last place in 18xx. It could all come down to one decision that you made. Right. So so buy the next train or start another company and shuffle trains around and make things happen, token out cities, do stuff. Change the status quo. If at all possible, try and play with one person, at least one person who has played in 18xx before if you're playing in person. But don't hesitate to try it if that's not possible. If you're teaching the game to other new players, though, and you've never played, sit down the night before and play two-handed or three-handed and go through a few sets of ORs. It will really, really help that first experience. Yeah, definitely. And this next point is uh, probably going to be divisive and very group-dependent, but if your group is okay with not finishing a game, go into your first game not expecting to finish. Set a time limit play what you can, learn how the game works, and come back for your second play with more experience. And related to that, play the same title multiple times. Uh, While these are all built on a similar framework and learning a new title is easy, if you play the same game over and over, you'll shorten the learning curve and your initial games will get faster more quickly. And also on that note, uh, there is a, a, a little tip that we have for running out your last sets of ORs. Once you are done building track and putting station tokens down on the map, your routes may not change for a couple of ORs or maybe a couple of sets of ORs. And a tip for calculating the end of the game to save a half an hour of time potentially is to calculate how much your trains are running for, multiply that by the number of ORs you have left, and then pay that out for everybody's shares all in one bulk rather than going through each step of each OR when nothing is changing. So let's talk about cost in both time and money. These games generally cost more than what you'll be used to paying if you're coming from the more general board gaming hobby, unless of course you're willing to pay with your time and make print and plays. But for many people, they either aren't confident in their ability to produce a game or they like nice things and they want it to be shiny and pretty. Um, I'm raising my hand. This might not be the, <laughs> the the genre for you, if if that's the case, but we'll see. Johnny, did you have something to say? I said I'm raising my hand when you said for people that like things that are pretty. Oh, I thought you wanted I, to say something, but that's what you wanted to say. Yeah. You like yeah. them. You like pretty things. Yeah. Yes. Although that uh, invalidates your statement of this might not be the hobby for you. It might not. Or it might be. You could, <laughs> you could be like a person like Johnny who who does like his shiny, pretty games, but also can appreciate the... Simple, utility, I don't know, what's the right word? Simple, beauty. Utilitarian or Spartan. Yeah, it's a Spartan look for a lot of these games. And you pay a fair amount, but let's talk about that. So $80 to $100 for many titles is like a standard price for these games. And when you receive the box that you paid $85 or $100 for, you might be surprised that it's just some cardboard and a couple wood tokens and some rules and a map. But they're generally either handmade or made in smaller print runs. That's changing somewhat now with Kickstarters such as Grand Trunk Games 1861-1867, which is a nice low price point. And some people have used it to learn 18xx effectively. We haven't, so we're not going to recommend it here, but keep that in mind. And a few titles are being mass produced now, but on small print runs. So that's why they're so expensive. And there's also the question of time commitment. And uh, so let's talk about that a little bit. Your time commitment for a first game, if you don't have a veteran there to run the table, uh, you're probably looking at six hours to actually play a game from start to finish. Uh, That could be shorter, especially if you're listening to this episode and you use some of our tips, you could play your first game in four to five hours. Um, But generally speaking, your first game is going to be a bit longer. After getting past the new player learning curve, most games in the genre fall into the three to five hour range. That's the bulk of the games, uh, even with experience. Some play faster, like 1846, 1889, 18 Chesapeake. I'd like to mention 18CZ, the Moravia Silesia variant. It's not talked about often, but inside the box for 18CZ is a small two to three player map with a very basic variant. That takes, uh, I think it took us about two and a half hours to play. Now, it wasn't our first game, but that's still faster than most of our games take. I think it was like two hours. It was very short. 
Yeah, it was really short. And it's uh, it's very basic, um, but it does teach most of the, you know, most of the basic framework of 18xx. And um, the nice thing is it's got a nice two-player variant in there and then a full three to five player game. So it's got three games in one, essentially. It's another one I'd consider as a teaching game or a learning game. Uh, and just as a caveat, when Johnny says three to five hours is what the bulk of 18xx games will take to play, that's three hours may be a pretty standard playtime for a certain game and five hours might be a standard playtime for another. This is kind of the bell curve. Yeah. And it also depends on the play group. There are some groups that generally just play slower and some that play much faster. None of this is hard and fast. Then you get games on the other end of the spectrum that are going to take much longer to play. Uh, 1822, which is uh, has recently gotten a reprint from All Aboard Games and will be coming next year or maybe later this year. Uh, 1817, which was recently reprinted also by All Aboard Games. And 18OE, uh, there's a very long list of games that are very, very long, you know, six, eight, 12 hours. One thing you can do, though, is play the same game as we mentioned with the same players on repeat. This will make your playtimes drop drastically and quickly. And another thing that you can do is listen to our episode 13, Just Play Faster with Joe Huber. Uh, he's speed 18xx player. Uh, <laughs> he's got the the world record for the fastest game of 1846. And they're actually trying to break that record again. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think they, they played, do you know what it is? Was it 46 minutes? I thought, 46 I thought minutes? it was 46 minutes, but uh, recently they were trying to schedule a, an online synchronous play to try to beat that time on, uh, I think they might have been doing it on Doc Games, but I'm not sure. Yeah, so this was in person. I think that, yeah, it was it was sub sub one hour for sure. Um, so pretty pretty quick. I think the, the idea was they thought it would be fun to play 1846 in 46 minutes. And I think that was the only reason they really tried it. <laughs> but... Even 46 is not generally a sub one hour game. <laughs> yeah. So so at this point, we have just sort of some more questions with maybe less rigorous responses. But Johnny, are, are 18xx games as complicated as I've heard, as if I were someone else who'd heard that? Yes. Oh, damn it. <laughs> no, they're, they're not. I, I mean, to be honest, especially if you're coming from a heavy Euro gaming background, they're actually relatively simple rules-wise. And even if you're not coming from a heavy Eurogaming background, they're still relatively simple rules-wise. The quote-unquote complexity comes from this, the strategic depth. And that depth is something that you're going to explore over many, many plays. But the rules themselves and being able to get through a game, it's pretty easy. And I think uh, anyone can, pl can pick up and play. Uh, even young, I've heard of uh, people teaching their young children to play. And I don't think anybody should be intimidated by the genre based on hearing that it's complicated. Yeah. So another one is that, you know, you might have heard that you need to be good at math for these games. There's lots of math in them. Uh, so Johnny, do I actually need to be good at math? Nope. Can you add three plus five plus six plus 10? Okay. Uh, Eric can't and he can still play. So <laughs> it's 24. Um, no. <laughs> you were asking uh, me, I see. Um, use use calculators if you have to, or write it down on a on a notepad. Um, it's it's arithmetic, and some multiplication, and it's usually multiples of ten. It, it's not complicated math. Right. The most complicated math that you encounter in these games generally is oh, I'm paying, you know, twenty three dollars a share, and there are three shares out there, or I have three shares, right? And so now I I need to do twenty three times three. Okay, well, that's $69. Great. Um, and, you know, you there are little charts that you, if that's too hard, I'd say practice. But if there are, if you really don't like that, there are charts that, that speed that up um, that you can lean on. So you don't really need to be good at math, no. Yeah, but Eric, aren't they ugly? Yes, mostly. But so are you, so that's Ouch. fine. I <laughs> we got no. that backwards because I actually wrote that burn and then I let you use it on me. I know, it was great. <laughs> um so that's something that has been debated since the dawn of time 18xx games are very plain looking they are hex grids i think they generally were developed by a group of people that also were war gamers um i think there's a lot of overlap there so 
some of the DNA of wargaming boards and, and functionality got brought into the, the genre. Um, Avalon Hill was a big publisher of, of 1830, the first publisher of 1830. And they did, you know, they're, they're a wargaming company. They were anyway. So they're stark. They're functional is the thing, though, that most of them you can look and, and assess all the information on the boards and not be distracted by art. Although some games have nice productions that have fancy art. And if you appreciate that, then there are some of those as well. Yeah, I think some attempts to make the games look nicer are more successful than others. But I think that enough have been made that it's been proven it can be done. And I think it's generally starting to trend towards at least a little bit of embellishment, like 18 Chesapeake and some of the uh, Lonnie Orgler titles. But if you're the kind of person that really loves art in a game and like you'll buy a game based on the artwork and you look at these and you go, I don't know, that looks kind of boring. I don't know what I can say to convince you to try, but please, if these sound interesting to you up until this point, if you were listening to the conversation and you've gotten this far, try it out. And you might notice that the artwork kind of that thing, that issue for you might might bleed away. Maybe not, but for me... It did, and I'm happy that I that I gave him a shot. Yeah, and I think for for me in particular, I felt that way about some of the splatter games, uh, the Great Zimbabwe, for example. The first time I ever saw a picture of that, I was like, oh, that's kind of boring looking. And now I love that art style, and I, I think that actually kind of made me a little more open to 18xx when looking at how stark that artwork looked, because I had already had an experience where my first impression was not positive of the artwork, and then I grew to love it. So I figured, well, that could probably happen with 18xx as well. It can happen to you too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but okay, so maybe maybe they're not ugly. Maybe. Can you have fun playing them though? Sounds like a lot of work. What a rude question. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, we generally play games to have fun, and we play 18xx, so I would say you can have fun playing them. Uh, <laughs> what a glowing review. You can. You can. Uh, yeah, no, that, that wasn't a great answer to the question. But I think to answer that question, I'll ask you another question. Uh-oh. What makes these games special to us that makes us enjoy them? Well, so for me, the first thing that came to mind when I was trying to answer this question was the shared incentives. Besides a couple other train games that we we talked about on a past episode uh, called Cube Rails games, which are much shorter than this and, and have less complexity and operational steps and stuff. They're the only games that I know of that have shared incentives the way that 18xx seems to. So when I buy a share in someone else's company, I have, have bound my fate to them and I'm leeching off of them potentially or trying to interact with them. And they might have the best running company, but if they don't have the like enough shares in that company, then it's not going to do them any good. And I'm I'm benefiting off of their good moves. Yeah, and it actually sometimes makes what in other games when there's no shared incentives would be obvious decisions, uh, very non-obvious decisions in these games. Sometimes I will make a decision that technically hurts me, but it also hurts the player that is competing with me for the win most. So other players at the table may actually benefit by my decision that hurts me, but the person that I need to be hurt by the decision will be hurt more than me. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic that the shared incentives brings to the game. Here, here. So for me, one of the things that I really love is that these are a system of games that are all built on the same framework. I'm a person that likes to play a wide variety of games and the people I play with don't always appreciate that. And this gives <laughs> me, this satiates that desire for me to play a variety of games while also making it easier on me and my group of friends to play new titles because you don't have to learn everything. You just have to learn the differences in most cases. Right. So I want the Euro gamers out there to picture this. Imagine if you got the new hot game that you were super excited in and it came in the mail. And instead of learning how to play and having to teach Lisboa or something to a new group of players or to your group of players who just learned some other complicated crazy euro with completely different rules the week before and they're going to go God, like can't we just mm. imagine if you could just say all right so you know the game we played last week this game is like that game except when you do these three things 
they're different and here's here's how they're different and that's it. And so you get to try and play all these games without the rules overhead every week. And while it's still good to play like one game more frequently, I think, than, than we do uh, for the podcast, um, it just makes that, you know, moving around from title to title very, very nice and easy. All right. I kind of hijacked your 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 stuff, uh, but I'm, I'm going to do one now, I guess. Uh, another thing that I really like about these games is that they give you like a set of tools the mechanics of the game and they let you just kind of do whatever you want they're very sandboxy and they let you use them in creative ways to do things that aren't available in other games and they're not necessarily obvious Um, like the rules don't ever talk about company dumping really they explain that a presidency can change but when you read the rules and then you play that first play you kind of go oh i see i can do this i can i can manipulate operating order by selling a share and then operate second or i can buy another company and buy both of the trains out of there and force buy a train to cause someone else's old trains to rust like all these things that you can do they're just they're there they're tools waiting for you to to do that and so when you read new 18xx rules you kind of kind of look for like ooh, what can i how can i use that what can i do with that thing i just don't see that in other games usually i agree completely there's nothing I can add to that wonderful statement. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the another thing that we both really love about this is uh, there's no output randomness. So we're not playing the game. We're not waiting for some event to pop up that's going to say uh, a meteor struck Eric's track and now he's going to lose the game. Uh, we're just playing against each other. With some exceptions that we actually haven't played. We, we uh, yeah, we mentioned that at the beginning. Sometimes volcanoes will erupt in these games, but uh, in general, there's no output randomness unless you're talking about 2038, which has tons of randomness. But 99% of the games in the genre do not have randomness. You're just playing each other, and you know that whether you won or lost was all based on the decisions you made and how well you played. And for me, that's that's something I very much value in games. Uh, I'm not a big fan of randomness save for certain circumstances, depending on the people I'm playing with. Another thing that they do is because the games are longer than most other games, they can tell a story um, if you're looking for it on the board. At the very least, give you a sense of progression as you play through the early rounds and your railroad company has a little stupid route that can only go between two dinky towns. And then by the end of the game, it's running its diesel train all around the board for thousands of dollars and you're getting rich and you're actually getting rich it's poker chips but um you know you get to feel the success or failure of your own decisions as a director of a company and that's pretty neat and last but certainly not least these are special to us because there was this big wide open space for a brand new podcast about 18xx games (laughs) Not too wide, but <laughs> we uh, we weren't no we weren't certainly not the first uh, podcast about eighteen XX, but um, we all know that people, especially board gamers, consume content faster than any one person can create it. So uh, we were we had a, a genre that we became passionate about, and it was really cool that we could start a podcast about it. And I think that having this to talk about these games after we've played them, or you know just shoot the shit about them is pretty special to us so and it kind of helps feedback the enthusiasm right it's a positive feedback loop where we play them and then we talk about them and then maybe we'll talk about a game we haven't played and we'll want to play and yeah so i highly recommend it doing something videos or blog posts or podcasts about things you're passionate about if you have time it also makes you feel like a cool snobby game hipster if you play 18xx games so there's that um so we mentioned paper money uh, but what about spreadsheets, right? You might you might have heard that spreadsheets are needed to play these games. I wouldn't worry about that until you've played it a handful of times. At, at that point, you can go check out our episode 13 that we mentioned with Joe Huber, Just Play Faster. And in the show notes for that, there's a link to a generic spreadsheet that his group developed if you're interested in shaving off some time of your plays. Yeah. And like Eric said, don't worry about it right away. The, the general, if you're, if you're curious though and can't wait until you've gotten some experience, the general gist is that uh, it allows you to record payouts during the operating rounds and do one massive transaction uh, during the stock rounds instead of a bunch of tiny transactions during the operating rounds. So I have a question. Do I have to care about trains? 
to enjoy 18xx? Unfortunately, you don't. <laughs> you don't have to care at all about trains. Most people don't, I feel like. I didn't when I started, and I really, really liked them, even though trains, it was like historical games about trains that seemed kind of boring. The, the theme, anyway, to me did. And now I really enjoy the history. It's gotten me more interested in them as I've played them, but it is not why I liked the games initially. I thought that the theme fit very well for what I was doing. I felt like I was buying stock and selling stock and building routes and stuff like that. And so I got that feeling of being the director of the company, but it's very abstracted from anything about trains. So you don't need to care about them. Cool. And you can even skip the last few minutes of every episode where you talk about trains? You may not skip that. That's mandatory listening. Ah, okay. If you're not aware, at the end of most episodes, I have a train fact. I'm talking about history of trains to bring us all up to speed on some of the stuff that we should. And you have to listen to it. <laughs> all right. If you insist. Yep. So do you have any other tips, Johnny? We have anything left? Yes. Tons of other tips. But uh, we've already covered everything a new player would need to get started. So we do talk about, you know, not that we're experts in 18xx, but we do try to, to focus some of our episodes on some strategy discussions. Uh, for example, we do have a track discussion that talks about how to prep for games by learning the track roster and the, the tile manifest and the general pattern of how track upgrades. And if you're interested in all that, go to our episode 15 I can't remember what it's called, sticks and curves or something. Yeah, curvy we talk about the, the two. Yeah, we talk about the two different uh, types of track and all those details. But I think you've more than enough information to get started if you're interested and if you've gotten this far and are still interested. Yeah, if you um, play a game and like it and are interested in joining our little community for a $2 patron buy-in, you get an invite to our little local train shuffling discord and we have a nice community of a bunch of people talking about train games all the time and they would love to show you the ropes or one thing we didn't mention actually now that i'm thinking about it is playing online it is possible we're, so we're recording this during covid and if you want to give a game a try without access to a group with lots of people you can play on several websites but i would suggest for your very first experience to go check out 18xx.games and uh, both 18 Chesapeake and 1889 as well as 1846 are available on there to play. There's a little tutorial, I think, just for 89 that you can walk through. But there's lots of people that are happy. Even in the general chat there, you can say, hey, I'm a new interested player. Can someone teach me how to play? Especially if you have access to something like Discord or Zoom and you're not feeling shy and you can just voice chat with someone, they can talk you through how to play a game. That's a decent way to try it. It's not going to give you what it really feels like to sit down at a table, which I feel like is a much more rich experience, but also will take longer in that first play. So pros and cons. Yep. And we have a, uh, Eric mentioned our, our Patreon chat. We've got a ton of games going on there. Uh, seems like somebody always is looking to start a game. That's true. We, we would absolutely be elated if someone joined the Patreon, came in and, and wanted to be taught. We would be happy to do that. We're selling ourselves uh, now. Yeah. Well, and uh, even if you just shoot us an email or a um, message on Reddit, I know Eric has actually started, not taught, but started games with people that say, hey, I don't have anybody to play with. You want to start up a game? So you don't have to join our Discord if, if we made it sound that way in order for us to play a game with you. Speaking of our Discord community, we asked them, which kind of ties into if you're looking to start 89 because you're willing to go and print and play a game, what are some tips for starting print and play? We got some answers. Uh, Tom R. said he thought it was a great start getting some full page label paper and some page sized cardboard and making some map only projects like 1836 Jr. I, I will caveat that with it. That requires you to already have 1830 or 1856 to have the tiles. Otherwise, you do have to print and cut the tiles. And Joe L. said 18LA, which is an 1846 variant, was a good start for him. Single trip to Walmart and about $40 for a cheap laminator, a cutting board, a... Um, Eric, help me out here. Rotary cutter. A rotary cutter, yep. And he was off to the races. It took him about a day to, uh, to cut up 18LA. Similarly requires a copy of 1846. Yes. If you don't want to print the tiles. But you can 
print out the tiles too for a bunch of these games that are available. Like 1889, you can find the print and play files on BGG uh, and just print those and cut it out. And it doesn't need to be fancy or, or anything for you to try it. Right. My copy, I might have gone a little overboard in the first one and did it all on chipboard. I've found since then that just laminating the tiles and cutting them, it works fine too. Yeah, and you don't need a, a high-end laminator. Uh, you might eventually want one, but you can start off with the $40 laminator at Walmart. And speaking of cutting tiles, there's a 100 different ways to do it. Probably not 100, but there are many different ways to do it. And the rotary cutter is a way to get nice, clean cuts, but it's also one that takes more care and some practice. You could use a guillotine cutter. I've heard that works well. Uh, you could even just take a pair of scissors and cut out your tiles. I know that Len does that and... His look great. I've, I've played with some of his games in which he's cut his tiles with scissors. So it's not expensive. Uh, it doesn't have to be perfect. You can get into print and play. So, you know, if 89 is a title that you're interested in and you want to go and print and play that, I wouldn't be intimidated. And I would take some of these tips on getting started and head to Walmart and start printing your games. Yeah. And just another frame of mind when you're considering that print and play is that you can make it, make it work, but not pretty. And try it. And then if you like the games, after a play or two and you still enjoy them, then you can make the investment and buy the, you know, the nice, well-produced game and, and pay it forward and give your print and play copy to someone else to try and get them interested or one of the people you learn with. And that's a good way to spread the interest in the hobby. And uh, I, I wouldn't be here talking about these if I didn't give that a try and print 89 because at the time, a $100 price tag just seemed like way too much. And I'm so, so glad that I did do that. Uh, I, I would go back and tell my past self, please go buy the stupid game. Just buy it because you're going to love it. But I can understand the hesitation. If you if you are hesitant, just spend a night or two, print it, and you'll feel good about having made it. And the games are fun. They're really fun. Listen to a few podcast episodes while you cut your game up. Hey, listeners. Future Eric here, editing this podcast. And shortly after this recording, one of our patrons, Dan, sent us an email outlining some of his suggestions for how to get started in print and play and some resources that you might be interested in. So I'm going to insert that into the episode here. And once we're done with that, we'll hop back to the rest of the episode. Hey, guys, this is Dan, the, uh, let's say, uh, disgruntled comrade uh, of Eric's. Uh, having spent eight months together in the frozen Russian wastelands. I thought I would call in and chime in about uh, the PMP question that Johnny asked last podcast. In terms of uh, materials, I would suggest that getting into PMP, just get a healing mat, uh, a cheap laminator, a good rotary cutter, and a corkback steel uh, ruler. It's more important to uh, invest in the materials that you're going to use, like the laminate, uh, than uh, your paper or uh, your supplies. Uh, most of those can be had uh, pretty cheaply, but uh, you're going to want to get some, some good laminate. Um, any light cardstock or even heavyweight uh, photo paper is going to do you just fine. Um, but I also want to talk a little bit about the titles that might be good for new PMPers. Uh, First off, uh, I'm sure everybody knows the 1889 uh, Carthaginian redraw. Um, some people have a little bit of uh, issues with the uh, the track colors and whatnot. Um, so if that's you, um, there's also another uh, 1889 redraw that I prefer um, from Jonathan Wells, uh, who is a gringo hairpiece on uh, uh, BGG and uh, elsewhere. Um, that should be pretty easy to track down. Um, also, there is an 18 EU uh, redraw by uh, Greg Smith, a.k.a. Broggles, on BGG. Uh, that's a project I'm currently working on right now. Um, uh, but I also wanted to highlight uh, there's plenty of uh, options for printing and playing cube rail games as well. So don't forget about those. Um, those just uh, require some cheap uh, wooden cubes, um, and mostly you get experience uh, making maps and cards. Uh, so it's a little bit lighter than your average 18xx. Uh, some candidates, uh, I know Travis Hill has a couple of games, uh, particularly Union Station. Um, that's available for free download on uh, BGG. Um, 
Holland Spiel uh, releases their files uh, on wargamevault.com, uh, and there you can uh, pay for the files for the Sioux line. I think that's about $12 or something. Um, and then uh, if you look up Seahorse Laser Design, that's Brandon Sheremetto up in Canada. He has a, I think it's called Nordisbanen. Um, that's a small PNT uh, cube rail game uh, that's more point-to-point uh, rather than uh, a hex map. I haven't played it yet, but it looks pretty interesting. I think those files are under 10 bucks. And then, of course, uh, there are the Tracks games uh, that were released for uh, Tracks 2020. Uh, that's where you saw the release of 18 Los Angeles, uh, which is probably that best game. And uh, if you'd like to print and play that, I think uh, you can probably get those for, I think it's $20 if you go to the Tracks website. Um, the aforementioned uh, Seahorse Laser Design also sells a redrawn, fully uh, produced uh, game for order as well if you're not into PMP. Uh, but if you are, uh, then you can uh, get the original from from the tracks website. Hopefully that's enough uh, leads for interested people to go on. Um, I love printing and playing games, so hopefully um, that advice gives some other enthusiasts a uh, jumping off point. Okay, uh, thanks for taking listen and uh, don't forget to shuffle and dump them. All right. So, I mean, I guess that's all we have to say. I hope we've convinced some people to to try an XX game. If you are a veteran player who's been listening to this just to hear what we've said, please point people who ask you about this, if, if you felt it was good, to this episode. And hopefully we'll get some more new, fresh ears on it. Yeah, I don't know. Johnny, anything? No, I mean, I, I well said. I hope that at least one person that's interested in 18XX listens to this and decides to take the leap. If you do, please let us know. That would feel great. Um, we have contact information uh, galore in our show notes. We're on Twitter. We have an email address. We're reachable all over the place. Those those are the two easy ones. We have a phone number. We have a phone number with a hotline that we can play recordings back on the podcast. We're on Reddit. We're all over the place. So that's it. Um, and remember... Run your trains and pay your divs. Run your trains and pay your divs. And what was it? Rust and shuffle. Shuffle and rust or something. (laughs) (laughs) Shuffle trains and rust. Yeah. And steal. I don't know. We're still working. Squeal, according to Oh, steal. Yeah. Shuffle Shuffle up and and deal. Good. We have a very stable outro line. That's it. That's what you should know about (laughs) us. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Stop on this train. Everyone, please leave the train. Thank you for riding with MTA New York City Transit.